Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Thank you for joining us today and welcome. This is an hour dedicated to understanding a little more about ourselves, our beliefs, and how we approach enlightenment. Indeed, an hour devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and chips and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we think as we do. An hour for the open-minded willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. Okay, I, I want to give a special shout-out to all of you that joined us in Pasadena. We sincerely enjoyed ourselves, and you were absolutely wonderful to share with. I just want to thank you all very much. And I'm sure, Ravinder, you share that, too. Do you not? Yes, we do. We met some fabulous people down there. One other thing before we get started, um, our prayers, our sympathies go out to all of you on the East Coast affected by the storms. Uh, you know, like everyone at Hay House Radio, we wish you the very best. Okay. <laughs> Every week I read some of your letters as our way of paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our show was all about self-hypnosis and subliminal technology and my new book by the same name. Indeed, I did several radio shares uh, nearly every day last week all about uh, these two power tools for self-improvement, including a three-hour coast-to-coast with my friend George Nury. Kept me up till 2 a.m. in the morning, but for George, I'll do that anytime. Paula wrote, I loved your show. You have so much information to share. Your book and the accompanying CD are simply awesome. James wrote, Eldon's work is the most useful I have ever encountered. Wow, thank you, James. Cindy wrote, in his new book, Eldon Taylor literally gives you the tools and practical knowledge to create whatever changes your heart desires. Connie wrote, Dr. Taylor, if you write it, I will buy it. I have learned so much from your books and your intertalk programs have been a positive force for my whole family. I like that. What do you think? If you write it, I'll buy it. That's as good as it comes, huh? I read everything you write, too. Yeah, I know, but you're biased. Kathy wrote, <laughs> I listened to you on Coast to Coast Monday night and enjoyed the interview very much. Today I ordered your book, Self-Hypnosis. I'm so tired of the same programs going round and round in my head, hindering me from beginning, from becoming the person I know I can be. I am very excited to read your book and learn how to reprogram my thoughts. Marty wrote, I heard you last night on Coast to Coast. It was stellar. Iwan wrote, firstly, I want to tell you that because I live in Europe, I order my programs from one of your UK distributors. And I must say, I am very much pleased by the results they have produced. Also, I have hooked my mother on Intertalk programs as well. She also feels the difference. So my thanks for making this technology available. Well, thank you, Iwan, for your feedback. June wrote, I love Dr. Taylor's work. I attended his workshop at an I Can Do It event. Segreta wrote, I have just purchased mind programming and have been so encouraged by the conversation and tools presented therein. Thank you. Nancy wrote, I am a practicing dentist and I would like to offer your programs for sale to my patients and offer them to other dentists. I have an MBA and would love to help market them for you. Well, Nancy, we welcome you to our team and thank you for your support. 
All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your email to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. We can't get all of your letters on the air, but they do impact our programming. And once again, I both appreciate and thank you for your feedback and continued support. Now to today's show. And I've been looking forward to this one because I really love this book. What Really Matters, Seven Lessons for Living from the Stories of the Dying by Dr. Karen Wyatt. Now, we've spoken with a number of hospice chaplains, nurses, and doctors about the evidence for life after death on this show. But today we're going to explore the idea of the messages the departing leave that can give us insights into how we can live a more genuinely meaningful life. Now, in full disclosure, I must tell you that some of the stories in Dr. Wyatt's book will get you. They did me. Uh, More on one occasion, especially as I was flying home from Pasadena, sharing some of the book with my lovely bride, uh, Ravinder, uh, I had to, uh, you know, choke back some of the emotion or dry my cheeks. Uh, But we'll get our guest to share some of these stories with you today. Dr. Karen Wyatt is a family physician who has spent much of her 25-year career as a hospice medical doctor caring for dying patients in their homes. Dr. Wyatt has lectured and written extensively on end-of-life issues with an emphasis on the spiritual aspect of illness and dying. She is the recipient of numerous awards for her volunteer work and the compassionate care she has provided to thousands of patients throughout her career. So let's get her in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Dr. Karen Wyatt. Thank you, Eldon. Thanks for having me on your show. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you, and, and I mean it. You, uh, you've really written a great book. I mean, I love it. And many of the lessons are fairly well known among our peers, but the way they're shared is so meaningful. It, it's like you've added new dimensions to a familiar object. So to begin with, though, you feel that you had to live the lessons in the book in order to write them. Indeed, uh, I I believe, if I recall correctly, a psychic friend of yours more or less told you that. So please, please share your own personal trial that finally allowed you to pen this great book. Well, um, I really got started in hospice work after my own father committed suicide. And I was in medical practice as a family doctor at the time, fairly new in practice with two small children. And my dad's death hit me very hard because I was a doctor who treated depression in my patients all the time. And the idea that I couldn't help my own father was so overwhelming to me. I just, I was devastated with grief and guilt. And uh, after about three years, I wasn't, I wasn't getting over it. I wasn't recovering from that grief. And that's when I decided maybe I needed to try volunteering for hospice because I felt like if I if I just immerse myself in death and dying and grief and sadness, maybe I could find a way out of it. So that's why I decided to go to hospice and start working with dying patients. And that's really when this transformation began for me because I found myself learning so much from each patient about, you know, I was looking at life through their eyes at the very end of life and hearing them tell me what mattered to them and what was important really caused me to evaluate all my own priorities in life and how I lived my life. Mm 
And uh, one of the most important lessons I learned was forgiveness and that that was something that really needs to be practiced every day. You have to keep up with it because we keep we keep accumulating more and more more and more things that happen to us. And right. I figured Life out is dynamic. That, we don't live in a vacuum. Exactly. I learned that you have to keep working on these things all the time. So that kind of got me started on this this spiritual path of of seeking out how to live my life from a higher perspective all the time. Okay, I, I, I want to unpack that more later. But first, uh, for clarifications, you use an Aramaic translation of the Bible and tie the seven lessons that are in the book into these teachings. But you also emphasize that the teachings are not necessarily Christian. Flesh that out for us, will you? Well, at some point, you know, after working with these hospice patients for a number of years and realizing, wow, I'm learning these really powerful lessons, I started to to name the lessons, you know, love and forgiveness. And at some point, it occurred to me, wow, this seems like the last words of Christ on the cross, like some of the some of the statements Christ made on the cross. And so I got out my Bible and read through those and realized how similar the lessons I was I was seeing from my patients were to the words of Christ. And I wanted to represent them, those words of Christ, as teachings that are meant to be universal for all of mankind, regardless of whether you embrace a Christian philosophy or not. They're the words of, of a man who's, who's at facing his death. And so I wanted to utilize those those teachings and those words from Jesus simply because they match the lessons I was seeing in the patients so well. <clears throat> and I felt like it gave a lot of validity and credibility to those lessons to see that Jesus himself went through this same process of reviewing these same lessons from life. Okay. Your book is structured in such a way that where there are seven lessons, there are also many aspects, fruits in quotation marks, if you will, to each. So our audience understands as we begin to to unpack these lessons, please share your idea behind how you organize the book, Dr. Wyatt. Well, I wanted to I, I wanted to not only I first I wanted to present stories that would touch people and that would kind of open them up to this idea of learning a little bit more. And as I myself sat and I started analyzing the stories and reading through them and thinking about what did I really learn from this story or or what what did I learn about love from this story? So I started going through in my mind some of the qualities of love and the features of love and, and some of the ways that um, enacting that lesson of love in my life, ways that it, it changed my life or impacted it. And then I decided that's, that's what I need to spell out for the audience um, who reads this book so that the, each lesson has a little bit more significance to it and something more to hang on to um, than just the idea, the theory or the idea of love uh, to give it a little more, something more tangible to hold on to and and to work toward. Okay. Now, with, with that perspective, one of the lessons that you offer is illustrated by the a story. It, it's the story of Vernon uh, in the chapter on Let Your Heart Be Broken. And, and I found this, I mean, this story really moved me. So I'm going to ask you to share the story, its lesson, 
and then relate the fruits so that we can see this pattern that you just discussed, please. Okay. Um, well, Vernon was a preacher who had spent all of his life in the pulpit leading people to giving thundering sermons from the pulpit and teaching people um, spiritual truths. And he had developed cancer um, later on in his life. He had to undergo radiation for the cancer, which actually cured the cancer but damaged his heart in the process. And that's sometimes one of the unfortunate consequences we see of treatment for cancer might rid the body of cancer but then cause damage to other organs that ends up being fatal to that person. So Vernon was was really admitted to us for being in severe heart failure. His heart muscle was so damaged it was it was gradually failing. And uh, so he had was no longer able to preach his sermons. He uh, when I first met him, he was would sit in a recliner. He kept his Bible and a notebook next to him on a table and would still write his ideas for a sermon, look up Bible verses and think about what he would what he might want to write in a sermon but wasn't um, able to ever actually carry that out. His condition deteriorated pretty rapidly, and he had a few strokes and began to lose the ability to speak meaningfully. He could no longer read or write. And uh, he he still kept his notebook, though, and every day he would scribble. He would just scribble um, lines and lines of scribble. We knew in his mind he was still longing to compose these um these sermons, but he had lost some of that capacity. Uh, And at some point, um, Vernon had to be admitted to a nursing home, and he and his wife were deeply in love with one another. They'd been sweethearts um, since high school. She had cared for him all of this time at home all by herself, but the uh, task of taking care of him was just too hard for her at that point by herself. So she had to allow him to be admitted to a nursing home. And uh, which was very heartbreaking for her to see him go and, and be taken to the nursing home. And once he got to the nursing home, he, his condition deteriorated even more rapidly. And um, his wife, Lydia, would come and sit with him every day and stay with him during the day. And um, knowing that he would soon die, um, she wanted to be there with him as much as possible. Well, one day, Vernon didn't really wake up the entire time Lydia was there with him. He was in a coma and really in that state of active dying. And she stayed with him but was throughout the day but was very tired and decided she should go home um, that night to try to get some rest. So she took his notebook, which had still been at his bedside, even in the nursing home, and she wrote a note to him on the page and just said simply, I love you, and um, left it for him. She put it over his chest and left it there for him so that he might see it if he were to wake up. But in the morning, she got a call from the nurse that um, Vernon had died. They they came in to make their morning rounds, and Vernon was gone. So Lydia rushed to the nursing home to to just to sit with him um, in those last few moments and found that he still had the notebook um, on his chest. So she, she um, picked it up to put away and and take with her, but found on that page, Vernon had scribbled in his little little scribbling hand. He had scribbled a lot of lines that said nothing, but had copied 
her words, I love you, um, down below. He had, you know, he had just carefully copied exactly what she had written and had also written, I love you, on the page. And that was such an amazing message <laughs> for her to hear from yeah. him. Miraculous, almost, that he was able to do that and to leave his beautiful, lovely wife, Lydia, one last message. And in my mind, that was that was his most profound sermon <laughs> that he had ever written. And I saw that as just as a miracle, um, but that was born of love, just incredible love. Uh, and so uh, that story was has been cherished by me for all these years since that happened. Well, I tell you, it sure pulled a tear out of me when I read the story. It, it's a, you know, it, it, and you say it's a miracle. Well, of course, it's a miracle. <laughs> it, it, there's no explanation for that short of the strength that love can give you. I, I don't know. I mean, even in a coma, how the communication, it had to be totally nonverbal in some way. So miracle is right. But with that in mind now, with the strength of all that love, why is it this chapter that tells this, this story is called, let your heart be broken. Please unpack the fruit and tell us. Okay. Well, the reason I write that is that I really, it came to came to me that love, as wonderful and joyful and blissful as it is, when we fully give ourselves to it and make ourselves vulnerable to love, it ends up breaking us open. And that the way that we most fully love another person actually is by, by being broken open. So we have to become vulnerable. We have to show others all of our weaknesses and our flaws. We have to take risks um, and risk that they might reject us, but we also risk that we will lose them. And so we have to be willing to, to go into love knowing that, that there will be losses and there will be pain and there will be, um, there, there will be tragedies in some ways that come to us through love. And my thinking is that we have to allow ourselves, we have to allow ourselves to be broken in that way. That's when we can experience the deepest aspects of love. And I saw it over and over again in these, well, couples like Lydia and Vernon, but also seeing families come together and the way they were able to care for one another and be there for one another in spite of the fact that, you know, I know that I will lose you. I know I'm, I'm going wholeheartedly into this relationship, even though I know I am going to lose you and that is going to hurt me terribly. And I guess it related to... Uh, my own acceptance of losing my father and and understanding that uh, if I hadn't loved him so much, I would not have grieved so much or hurt so so deeply to lose him, and it was all worth it. Marvelous message. Now, Dr. Wyatt, your book is really about how we live, and, and, and it sets out, you know, so, principles that if we were to live them, would change the world, not just our lives. So I have to ask you, the lesson so far, as I understand it, is about personal love. It, it, is it possible to take this, this kind of love, is it possible to make that less personal, shared with 
all, everyone that we meet? Is it necessary to open ourselves up completely to everyone in order to know this unconditional love? Absolutely. And and I think I think the stage of personal love is where we practice that love and learn about it and learn what it is kind of one-on-one with another person and with our family members. But that the goal from a higher perspective is to eventually take that take that love and take our openness to it, um, even once our hearts are broken open, take it to the world and then be able to see how we are connected to the rest of the world and to everyone else and be willing to share that love with with everyone in the in the biggest sense possible. One of my favorite authors says, um, what we think, uh, wait a minute, I, I, let me say it just the way he says it. What we think is less than what we know. What we know is less than what we love. What we love is so much less than what there is. And to that precise extent, we are so much less than what we are. Do you share that? Oh, yes, I love that. I love that idea. That uh, if we if we could love more, we could feel ourselves expanding more and becoming even more fully who we are meant to be once we and and that involves letting ourselves be broken by love and and wounded by love so the pain is a part of the process and of course you know i'm going to explore that more with you when we have more time but we just got a couple of minutes before we have a hard break so instead of go to the process let me ask you this I love the metaphor that you set up when you refer to the view from the galaxy. Use the Vernon story, if you will, to share with us the value of this perspective. Okay. Well, um, I I came with this idea of the view from the galaxy as being, you know, in every situation, there's always the smaller view, the garden view of where we live each day, but the galaxy view is the higher universal view of what love is about. And I think in that Vernon story, the message is that love transcends our physical limitations. Love transcends the limitations of a coma and the dying state. And love enables all kinds of miracles to happen once we engage it and once we're living in that space. Dr. Wyatt, so that everybody knows, uh, where where would we get your book? Where would we learn more about you? Uh, you know, what is your website? Give all that information. Share that information okay. with us now. My, my website is karenwyattmd.com, and uh, my books are for sale there, and I have uh, blogs and a newsletter, lots of other information on the website. And the book is also for sale at amazon.com. You you blog at Huffington Post as well. Do you have a, yes. a private blog besides that one? Yes, on my website there's an additional blog. Okay. Uh, Dr. Wyatt, one last question before we go to break. Of all of the messages that you have and what really matters, bottom line would be the most important thing is? I would say that we recognize that we were on a spiritual journey in a physical body and that the fact that we're mortal and that we're going to die is actually one of our greatest gifts that help us enjoy this life and and find it to be precious to us. Okay, we'll pick that up right there when we come back. 
The book is What Really Matters, Seven Lessons for Living from the Stories of the Dying. We're talking with Dr. Karen Wyatt. If you're not already in our chat room, this is an excellent time to join in the conversation. We have a short video for you of Dr. Wyatt uh, featuring her new book, uh, so be sure to check in. Just go to eldentaylor.com forward slash chat. Stay tuned. You don't want to miss what's coming up after these words from some of our friends. Every day, every moment, we face choices. Yet, how many of those choices are truly our own? Are you ready to step onto the path of discovery? Read Eldon Taylor's New York Times bestseller, Choices and Illusions. Now revised, updated, and expanded. Eldon combines provocative information, scientific research, and his own life's journey into a powerful message that we have the power to change. All we must do is be willing to choose to take the chance and change. Get your copy today from all bookstores. Have you talked to yourself lately? What does that inner voice say? Are you constantly hearing negative feedback? Ready for a change? Inner Talk. Eldon Taylor's patented subliminal technology can do just that. Change your inner self-talk. Turn off the negative by replacing it with positive affirmations. Inner talk has been researched at universities such as Stanford and by governments around the world and has been proven effective at priming your self-talk. Armed with a new positive outlook, you'll find everything becomes easier. From losing weight to stop smoking, giving presentations to riding horses, Learn new things to being a powerful salesperson. Choose your title for change today. Visit www.innertalk.com. That's I-N-N-E-R-T-A-L-K.com. Innertalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. And welcome back. If you just joined us, we're discussing what really matters. Seven lessons for living from the stories of the dying with author Dr. Karen Wyatt. But before we get back to the show, I want to invite you to join me on Facebook as a friend or a fan. This way you'll always know where we are and what's on next. I also want to remind you to be sure and sign up for the free e- for my free e-newsletter. I'll get that out of my mouth when you visit my website. Remember those free MP3 programs that we make available uh, as part of our Pay It Forward program. You'll also find there. All right, let's get back to our show. Before the break, Dr. Wyatt, you had just indicated to us that what matters most is remembering that, and, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but remembering that uh, all of this stuff that we deal with on a day-to-day isn't why we're here. That's right. We're really here, we're really here to grow spiritually, and, and that's the most important aspect of our existence here. We're here to learn what we can learn on this planet and from this lifetime, but it's the spiritual truths, I believe, that we're, that we're meant to learn and develop and grow through in our lifetime. Pay and unto I, Caesar what is Caesar's, pay unto God what is God. Do you think it's really possible in the environment that we have ourselves today, this 24-7 media outreach, the technology, 
I mean, one of the studies I looked at just today talked about how technology has become an integral part of our life. We're, we're no longer, you know, painting stories on the wall like cavemen. Uh, we're actually participating in those stories with uh, with our technology, our televisions, our computers, our video games, etc. Do you think it's really reasonable to expect that human beings are going to step away from that and 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 somehow make a focus on their spiritual life short of you know putting themselves in a convent uh, or traveling to tibet and climbing a mountain uh, i think it's i think it's very challenging for sure but i think uh what i've been experiencing in my own life is that <clears throat> i try to make each present moment be my little convent, my own little mini, mini monastery. And, you know, this moment right now, even when I am busy and I'm on the internet or doing Facebook at the same time, uh, as I'm doing whatever work I'm doing, I try to be as present as I can be and as aware as I can be of, of what's actually happening in my life so that, um, I, I try to tune in as much as possible to every every aspect of what's happening in my life rather than using technology to tune out and get numb and kind of avoid experiencing my life. I'm trying to use it to help me engage even more and be more present and more aware of every of, of what's happening. I, I love lessons, and I love the practical side of what those lessons do. And one of the things about your book, This Extra Dimension, is it does give, you know, uh, a practical um, interpretation of things. And you've just added another practical in how you carry on your own life. And so I'm going to pursue that for just a moment. You know, right now we, we have an election next week. There is a lot of emotion out there, people calling names and and you live in a country where part of your obligation, your responsibility in the country is is to participate, to vote. Uh, it is a government of the people, by the people, da-da-da. Uh, so you kind of have two callings here. How do you balance that, Dr. Wyatt, you yourself personally? I guess I, I, guess I, I keep in mind those two views I talked about in the book, the view from the garden and the view from the galaxy. And from the garden view, from my day-to-day life, I believe it's very important that um, that I vote, that I get involved, that I learn as much as I can about what's happening. But at the very same time, I, I can take this galaxy view and understand that in some ways it doesn't, it doesn't really matter what the outcome of that election is. I mean, people are saying, oh my gosh, this election is going to determine the course of our country. But from the galaxy view, I understand that there's just a, there's an entirely different realm in which we operate here at the same time. And that really all of these events, everything, if, if we look through history, we know that things Things keep going. We find ways around things. We solve our problems. We fix things. We move forward. And that that will continue to happen, regardless of who wins the election. That that isn't something that matters to the extent that I should make myself sick over it or hurt myself or even feel anger or hatred toward another person. 
over over who they might have decided to vote for, that I realize it's really important to be able to take that higher view and recognize it, it's all right. This is a time in our history when we're extremely polarized and there's a lot of a lot of feeling coming up for everyone, but that's actually really good. That's really good because we're all feeling so alive and fired up. And that's good. That's power and energy that we're going to need to move forward in the future as long as we just don't get stuck and believe that the, that the outcome of this one event, this election, um, is a deal breaker. <laughs> I think we have to just believe whatever happens, we're going to go with it and we're going we're gonna to make something good happen from it make the best out of it that's right yeah. now uh if we could all take that perspective we've had much more civil society but i think people tend to look at you know the suffering that they have in the world and if you don't get your own way nowadays that's suffering right yeah. as uh as as a problem beyond i mean we'll just use your metaphor their focus is totally in the garden one of your stories tells of how you gain a broader sight, a sight from within. This, too, I found to be an incredible story. It's the story of Ruby. Uh, in fact, I believe this story holds uh, so much value for all of us, and it's especially important today. You know, what happened on the East Coast and, and is still taking place, this election, the, the animus the the lack of civility you know i would love for you to share that story so that we get a, a broader perspective on dealing with the so-called setbacks in life okay um ruby was a woman when i met her she was near the end of her life um which is almost always the case with these patients i'm always beating them just just before they die. So I usually get to sit with them for a while and hear the story of their earlier lives, um, which was just so rich and valuable to me. And Ruby told me she had been a single mom for much of her life. Her husband died uh, when they had three small children, and she raised her children by herself um, for all of those years after his death, um, worked very hard to support her kids and raise them. And finally, in her 50s, when her children left home, it was time for Ruby to, to turn attention to herself. And she discovered at that time that she had some artistic talent that she had never before been able to even explore or utilize. She'd been so busy as a mom before that point. And um, initially, she, would do, she did some watercolor paintings, but her real love was weaving. She had a weaving loom, and she wove beautiful tapestries. So she'd paint, um, paint floral designs with watercolors, then she would weave that design into a tapestry. And her designs were very intricate and fine. She used fine threads and a small loom to make these beautiful tapestries. Um, but she began having difficulty seeing while she was working on her weaving loom and ended up going to the uh, to her doctor and found out, for one thing, she had high blood pressure that had been out of out of control, but she was developing macular degeneration that was interfering with her vision. And at that time, there weren't any good treatments for macular degeneration, so she was told that she would probably progressively lose her eyesight over the years. And eventually, she wasn't. She was no longer able to to weave. She couldn't use her loom anymore because the threads were so fine. She just couldn't see well enough 
um, to to create those intricate designs she'd been making. And she was very sad that she had to give up the weaving. But one day she saw an ad for a class at the local community college on wood carving, and she decided to just go try that class and see what it was like. She found out that she actually even though her eyesight was getting very dim, she was able to still carve the wood because she could hold it close to her eyes and use the little whittling knife and, and do carvings in wood. And so she uh, she took that up as her new artistic pursuit. And uh, her teacher was very impressed with the work she did. He he'd ne- said he'd never had a student who learned so quickly and had such skill at using this carving knife and carving these wooden statues. And in fact, she felt that her her wooden, um, not only they weren't just statues, but she would do uh, relief figures as well of, again, floral floral patterns. Um, she felt those were even better than the weavings that she had done before. So she was delighted that she had a new outlet for her artistic ability to be able to express it through wood carving and um, did quite well with that for a while until one day, very suddenly, she lost the rest of her sight completely. She became totally blind, and um, it was a big surprise to her. She hadn't really hadn't really realized how difficult it was going to be to to be unable to see completely, and now dependent on her children who had to take turns coming to stay with her to help her kind of adjust to now being blind. And Ruby went into a deep depression at first because she was so sad that she lost her outlet, her artistic outlet and her ability to be creative. And she really felt helpless and hopeless, like maybe there's no reason for her to be alive now. She had lost all of all of her uh, her reason for for her existence at that point, and um, was very despondent. But the teacher from her wood carving class came to visit her, and he brought a gift for Ruby, which was a lump of clay that he borrowed from the ceramics teacher at his school. And he said, "Ruby, I know that you can't do your carving anymore, but I thought you might enjoy." working with clay with your hands and trying this and seeing what it's like because you don't have to have your sight to do it. And he left the clay with her. And after a couple of days, Ruby decided to pick up that clay and work with it a little bit in her hands. And uh, she enjoyed the feel of it, enjoyed um, the the cool smoothness of that clay as she, she worked with it in her hands. And she began to start molding the clay into some some figures. She made about three different things that day out of the clay, unable to see them, but just by feel alone, she she modeled these three different different figures. And a week or so later, the art the wood carving teacher came back to visit her and saw her figures on the shelf that she had made and was startled with how beautiful they were. And Ruby was now excited because she had had a lot of fun modeling with the clay. So he began to supply her regularly with clay so that she could do um, sculpting with her hands in the clay. The teacher himself said that her clay sculptures far outshined even the wood carvings she had done before. And Ruby, the day I was visiting her, said to me, if I hadn't lost my eyesight, 
I never would have discovered my inner vision, which is what I use to make the clay sculptures. So she she embraced at each step along the way the fact that while she was losing something, there was something new to be gained and something new that she could create out of that loss. And in the end, she ended up not losing her artistic ability, but in fact manifesting it completely and fully because of the loss of her vision. That's a valuable lesson, I would think, to to all of us, especially when we think, you know, what else can happen. Uh, of all the experiences, and I and I want our listening audience to know this. I mean, we the, this book is packed with stories of the kind that you've heard about Ruby and Vernon, and and they will all move you. I'm leaving some of the real, you know, tear jerkers out. Although Vernon did get me, I have to tell you that one <laughs> because I, you know, I I don't really want to be choking back tears while I'm talking to Doctor Wyatt. But I, you know, I want you. I mean, this is a great book, and and it's not a book about dying. It's a book about living, and and unlike so many of these books, and we'll talk about this in a minute. It's also not a a book about hope, like there's life after death. Uh, we may discuss that. I'm going to ask Dr. Wyatt about that. But this is a book about living. It's a book about how you can make a better life for yourself today through your understanding, through your perspective. I I cannot endorse this book too much. Dr. Wyatt, of all the stories, of everything that has impacted you, what's the most compelling one? It's hard to choose because, as you know from the book, (laughs) there were so many. But uh, one of the patients, I guess, that I still I think of all the time um, was the patient Adam who had um, cancer of the face, cancer that had eaten away half of his face. One reason, and I didn't even write this in the book, actually, (laughs) but one of the reasons his story affected me so much is that... um, I had really severe acne when I was a teenager that left some scarring on my face. And I really kind of always retained this wounded image of myself as being someone scarred, who was scarred. My appearance was scarred and always thought of myself in that way. And it kind of caused me to be shy and inhibited around other people and fearful that um, I wasn't attractive enough. And working with this man who had half of his face was missing, had been eaten away by cancer. And seeing the beauty of his spirit every time I I went to visit him and how much love he was able to convey and show to other people in in spite of the disfigurement of his face, it caused me to just stop in my tracks and say, how could I ever, ever have thought of myself as of being scarred. How could I ever have let that hold me back when this man hasn't held back anything? And it was a it was very powerful and healing for me in that personal way to say to to completely let go of all of all of those old wounds and those old tapes in my head that somehow I somehow I was disfigured. And it was because of his beauty as a person and just seeing his soul radiate through him regardless of his physical appearance that that had a huge impact on me dr wyatt um no doubt 
you have uh, sat with patients or had experiences with a patient and their family that would give rise to you having an opinion about an afterlife, and I would be remiss if I didn't ask you that. Uh, so please share with us your view on an afterlife and any evidentiary, experiential insight you might have. Okay. Well, um, I absolutely came to believe in an afterlife from uh, being with patients and seeing them as they neared the time for their death and, and hearing them talk about loved ones who, who came who were coming for them, who came to visit. They would describe loved ones being in the room or waiting for them or watching over them. And I heard it so often and that it, it felt so true and so real to me. And I saw how much the patients were comforted by those visions as well. And it, it just made sense to me. But in addition to that, in my own life, there were several occasions, and I, I mentioned a couple of these at the end of the book, where I myself, after a patient died, had, I guess they were, I guess you would call them dreams, but they seemed somewhat like visions of those patients coming to me um, after they were gone in a way to say goodbye. And in those dreams, and Adam was one of those patients that I was able to see in that way, um, he came to me fully formed, his full, whole, healthy self as he had been before he ever got cancer. And I saw him. I saw him. Uh, and I I believe that he was in another, in the afterlife, and his soul was still existing there. And uh, he came to say goodbye and also to thank me for the care that I had given to him. And so those experiences um, leave me no doubts that there is an afterlife. I'm not sure I know exactly what it's like or what it consists of, but I don't doubt that. You, uh, you, you know, there was a time in our society that we talked about dying. We talked about death. on a, and, and it was a part of how we lived our lives, how we prepared uh, you know, it, it shared a level of importance with us that uh, that our society seems to have forgotten in an age where, you know, it's all about makeup and hairdo and fashion and looking for every young and so on and so forth. How do you deal with, uh, you know, speaking about death and dying? And, and what can we do as a society to, to open up those conversations more? Well, that's one of the reasons I wanted to write the book, is that I really wanted to try to put something out there that might inspire people to talk about it, and particularly using stories, because I think stories touch us. They kind of move past our fears and our our hesitance, <laughs> and they really touch us and open us up to the subject in a way that if we were just talked theoretically about death and dying, people would stay closed and resistant to it. But once they hear a story, like even the ones I've described today, suddenly they they just become much more open and start remembering, oh, I remember when my grandmother died, and I remember what this... I remember thinking about death once, and, and suddenly they're open to all those emotions and feelings. But I, I do believe it's very important that we that we bring this conversation up and just purely from a healthcare point of view, we're spending a lot of money on the last few weeks of life. And I think part of it is that we're in such 
denial of, of death and so reluctant to accept death that, that we're doing way too much at the end of life, trying to keep these physical bodies alive. And it's all based on fear. And it's, it's really fear that I think we could manage better, that we, we could get in hand if we could improve our conversation about death and dying. I, I, I so totally concur with you. Uh, you, on the other hand, are point blank uh, losing friends. I can tell by the way you talk about your patients and, and these patients coming to you after they pass that they, that they become more than just patients. So I'm just going to say friends. You use yeah. whatever term you're comfortable with. And and this is successive, one after another after another. This has to cause some some stress or discomfort. I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but how do you deal with that? Well, I've had to to really work on my own personal spiritual practice, and I I do yoga and I meditate and I pray. I actually kind of combine meditation and prayer in, in one. So it's been really important for me to tune in to my own needs, exercise, eat well, sleep, um, in order to stay as healthy as I can stay, and then um, continually be processing those losses. And I sometimes have little memorial services. I light candles or so, and sometimes kind of view it as a memorial or a time to say goodbye to someone and, and thank them and be grateful for having them in my life and what I've been able to learn from them. Um, but it is something that, that I have to work on all the time and be consciously aware of. Do you assist people in dealing with their grief uh, that may be having difficulty letting go of a loved one this way? Yes, I do. I've done some counseling, grief counseling with people, and um, I do. I actually use a lot of stories there, too, in my writing to try to help people cope with grief and even giving them some ideas for how to deal with grief. Some of that comes from the fact that I grieved over my dad's suicide for so many years. Um, and I came to realize that it isn't just something that we're done with in six months and that we put aside. I realized it's kind of a lifelong process. Comes with um, you, yes. Dr. Wyatt, give your website one more time. We're just about out of time. Okay. It's KarenWyattMD.com, and Wyatt is W-Y-A-T-T. Now, listen, uh, and everybody can reach out to you through your website if they needed counseling. Is that correct? Yes, yes. All right. Dr. Wyatt, I sincerely appreciate you being here. I love your book. I I can't say that too much. We've come to the end of another hour of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show, and we'll join us again, same time, same place, next week. Remember, until then, believing in yourself always matters. (laughs) 